Steve, we're in a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. And you probably noticed by now that living counterculturally isn't just knowing some things, it's actually practicing some things. How do you learn a new skill? Not how do you learn new facts. You can learn new facts by reading a book, hearing you know a talk. How do you learn a new skill? Uh, I have two grandsons at this point. One's learning how to walk. The other's learning how to swim. How do you learn those skills? Well, there is some information you need, and you've learned some other skills. How do you learn how to drive? How do you learn how to play tennis? How do you learn how to golf? How do you learn how to do plumbing or carpentry? Well, there's some information you need, but once you get that basic information, you've got to apply it and do some things, and then you need a conversation with someone who's a little further along so that they can help you and coach you and kind of correct some errors. You probably learn a new skill through some failure, through some getting up and trying again. That's why we've been encouraging you ever since January to use soap. Now we're in the middle of summer, I hope you're using SOAP. How many of you remember what the SOAP acronym actually means? Yeah, nobody. Uh, here's what we said. S stands for scripture. And I made a point that morning all the way back in January to say, let God start the conversation occasionally. Let God speak. That's the informational part. If you're going to learn a new skill, you need some information. Let God speak. And then the O is we make some observations about the passage. What's going on? The basic questions are, what does this passage or this verse teach me about God? What's it teach me about me or people? What does it teach me about Jesus and how does it lead me to him and the power that comes through the gospel? The A in soap is apply it, to live it out, put it into practice, not being able to master it the first couple of times, but you apply and through prayer, there's that continual coaching, that continual relationship. You see, soap isn't just linear where it's S-O-A-P, we just do that forever. It's kind of like a cycle. We come to God, we hear and read what he wants. We then make some observations, some people that tried it and may not have worked well, some others that tried it, it's working well. We apply it and then we pray. And in that soap picture, we actually acquire some skills. That's not only true in the natural world with plumbing and golf and tennis. That's also true when it comes to spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. My guess is that you're on that journey when it comes to prayer. You're on that journey on reflection and meditating on scripture. You're on that journey when it comes to practicing those things that lead to a deeper, more enriching relationship with God. And it's through trial and error to some degree, but through that process, actually growth and maturity occur. Well, this morning, we're gonna look at one of those practices that shows up regularly in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And that practice, that skill, that discipline is giving. Now, some of you are thinking, why did we come and with the threat of rain to hear a talk on giving? Well, I, I wanna tell you right up front, I'm not going to talk about giving this morning because God needs or wants your money. And I'm not here to tell you that Calvary Church really needs and wants your money. Your generosity has been absolutely amazing to us this, these past six months. I'm here to say giving 
is actually one of those disciplines, one of those practices that God wants to build into our lives that allow us to experience and then reflect the gospel to those around us, we grow up and others can grow up as well as we continue in that process. Well, if you have your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, or if not, you can just sit and listen. The passage that I'm gonna look at, just three verses from 1 Corinthians 16, I'm gonna draw two kind of teaching points, two things to avoid, and then we're done. Here are the verses, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, that may seem a little strange, but in a world of financial advice, whether you got that from your parents, your financial advisor, uh, your kids, your friends, in a world of financial advice, Paul's financial advice really is countercultural. You know, everybody I know has a missed financial opportunity story. Did you ever notice that? Well, I was thinking of a, a few. Let, let, let me share with you one. Uh, most of you know that Kim and I grew up in Center City in a town called Fishtown. Now, if you know that town today, let me just tell you, that's not what it was like when I lived there. But a whole bunch of the Zimmerman clan kind of lived in that area. So my grandmother and grandfather lived across the street. My aunt and uncle, my cousins lived next to them. We lived across, right directly across from them. My sister and her family, they lived down the street. So not just in the same neighborhood, on the same block, there were a number of residences, number of houses that were Zimmerman houses. Names were different, but all kind of Zimmerman clan. Do you realize, though, that all of those houses got sold before gentrification occurred? Now, if I look back, that was a missed financial opportunity. If my family members would have held on to those houses and kind of deeded them to me, what difference would that have made? You know, life would have been a lot missed financial opportunity. Everybody's got one of those stories. Now, what do financial advisors primarily tell us? And what do we all think today? Here's what we think. I don't want to run out of money before I die. So here's my advice. Die before you run out of money. But, but it kind of works the other way. Your financial advisor will say, now we need to plan so that you have enough money right up until the day you die. I think that what Paul would say, and you kind of see it hinted at in these verses, Paul would say, plan for the day after you die. Don't just plan to have enough money until the day you die. Plan for the day after you die. You're going to live a whole lot longer on that side than you do on this side. One of those verses I read, let me uh, tease out a couple of things. And they may not make sense, but I think I can show you uh, what I'm talking about. The first one, giving is an investment. Now, it's going to take us a minute to get there. Notice Paul says about the collection for the Lord's people. Now, if you were to turn over and read, you can read sometimes later, read uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll see that the collection for the Lord's people is discussed at length. In fact, two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians are related to the spiritual discipline, the practice of giving. Here, we're just getting a little snapshot in a couple of verses. Why is that strange? Well, 
Paul's collecting money for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's what he says in 16. That's what he expands on in 2 Corinthians. Why is that strange? Paul's raising money for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem from the Gentiles in Achaia and in in Macedonia. Well, why is that strange? The Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They were at, at odds for ages. That would be like going to a Michigan football. Remember we used to have football? That'd be like going to a Michigan football game at their home stadium, raising money for Penn State. That would, that would be like um, the Uber drivers raising money for Lyft when you get in their car. He's raising money among the Gentiles to support the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's like unheard of. Gentiles raise money for other Gentiles. Jews raise money for Jews. Paul's saying, remember the collection. We're raising money among the Gentiles for the Jews. That's like unheard of. Why would they be doing that? Well, there are a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. We don't have time to ferret them all out, but let me just mention one. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 says things like this. One day, all people, Jews and Gentiles, people of all races, all nationalities, all ethnic groups, they're all going to be invited and they're all going to be welcomed into the kingdom through the mission of my Messiah. Now that was prophesied back in the Old Testament. In Paul's day, that's not really being experienced much. What's Paul saying? I want you to make an investment into the future God promised. But if they looked with their eyes, they weren't seeing that future lived out much. Giving is an investment, but it's not an investment in what we see. It's not an investment in what we experience. It's an investment in what God promises. It's an investment of what the gospel does. It's an investment in the mission of Jesus. And so he says to the Gentiles, remember the collection I talked about? We're raising money for the Lord's people. And the Lord's people includes Jews and Gentiles, men and women, people of all races, all nationalities, all ethnic groups. They're all invited and they're all welcomed. Our giving, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, is an investment into God's plan, God's promises. It's not an investment into ourselves. That's what our 401ks are all about. This is an investment in what God says. That's a little countercultural, isn't it? Which immediately then brings us to the second point. Giving requires faith. (laughs) If giving is an investment in what God promises that hasn't quite come to fruition yet, then giving requires faith. Now, the phrase that that, that I want to look at in those verses Do this on the first day of the week. All right, now it's quiz time. Just make sure you don't fall asleep. What day of the week is the first day of the week? Just shout out. At Sunday, at Sunday, all right? What day did the Jews worship on and they were called to worship on the Old Testament, on the last day? What day of the week is the last day? Say, good, see if Sunday's the first day, Saturday's the later. You're all bright this morning, yeah. What changed so that the Christian communities weren't gathering on the last day the way all the Jewish communities were and all the synagogues were. What changed to cause them now to gather, worship, celebrate? And Paul says, 
give your collection to my plan and my promise on the first day. What made that big difference? The resurrection made that difference. Have you heard of capitalism, that economic system? Have you heard of socialism, that economic system? Have you heard of trickle-down economics? Have you, heard of, have you heard of Keynesian economics? Have you heard of resurrection economics? That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying, if you need evidence of God's faithfulness, don't only look at your balance sheet, look at the resurrection. We don't practice capitalism, socialism, Keynesian, trickle-down. We practice resurrection economics which says, on the basis of Christ and his mission, I'm going to put my investment into that, not seeing it in, in completion and fulfillment. I'm going to trust that it will come to fruition. And the resurrection is evidence that God's plan will be completed, even though we only see it in process today. Jesus actually picks up on the resurrection in that picture. And he says this, if you take a seed and you just hold that seed, you have one seed. But if you take that seed, put it in dirt, kind of cover it over, that seed can produce hundreds and thousands of seed. The one seed, if it remains just the seed in your hand, is one seed. But the seed, when it's in the ground and dies, can bring life to hundreds and thousands Paul then picks up on that metaphor, not just of the resurrection. Paul uses that metaphor to describe what our giving should be because he's calling us to practice resurrection economics. Trusting that God is faithful, we put our faith in God and his promises and the resurrection is evidence that we're investing in a plan. We may not see all the details fulfilled. We know that that's what's coming. We make an investment in that and the resurrection is proof that that will be the conclusion. Well, let me mention uh, two things that may stall you the way it kind of stalls me. I'm gonna wait to give until I really feel moved. And so what happens, you know, we need preachers and we need people describing incidents around the world in terrible situations. I'm gonna wait till I'm emotionally moved and then I'm gonna give. I'm gonna wait till something or someone moves me drastically and then I'll give once my emotions are fired. Notice Paul doesn't say that here. Paul says very deliberately on the first day of the week, take account of what God has given you. It's all his stuff from beginning to end. So take account of what God's given you and set aside a portion in keeping with what God has given and make an investment in what God's doing and will do. And remember, look back on the resurrection as you look into your checkbook, into your wallet, and, you pr and the pr future's promised and guaranteed because of the past live in the present. Interesting, right? Don't wait until you feel moved. Oh, here's another one. Don't wait until you have excess. Oh, let me just, when are you going to have excess? My guess is probably tomorrow, next week, next month, another year. We're never going to have excess because we live with our needs and our wants being an enormous list, our reality being kind of a short list, well, how in the world can I deploy my very limited resources to my want list and my need list? You're never gonna have excess. I don't care how much you have. You can ask to you know, pick the 10 wealthiest people in the United States and the world, what do they need? A little more. We're never gonna have excess, right? But remember the first two points. 
Giving is an investment in what God's doing. God doesn't need our money. He kind of says, hey, I want you to partner with me. Let's practice resurrection economics, not practicing some other form of economics. I'm reminded of a crazy story. Some of you may have uh, may have heard it before. There was a man who was uh, only given a, a short period of time to live. He was sent home. He was kind of uh, in the bedroom. And as he was lying there, knowing that the time was... Uh, coming for him to check out, he smelled that smell, chocolate chip cookies. His wife was making chocolate, and they were his favorite. So he forces himself, crawls over to the edge of the bed, kind of falls out, crawls his way to the kitchen. He can't even stand up, gets to the counter. His hands get on the counter, pulls himself up. He reaches for a cookie, and all of a sudden, his wife smacks his hand with a spatula and says, they're for the funeral. Put it back. You ever feel swatted by the spatula? Remember what uh, all of our financial advisors are going to say. Make sure your plan will lead you to have enough money until the day you die. Maybe a better question is, what's the day after you die going to be like? You're going to live a whole lot longer on that side than on this side. Well, I want to end with a verse that's tucked away in the Old Testament. And, and again, I want to preface this by saying, I, ple- I, I don't want you to think, I'm not talking about giving this morning because God needs your money. Calvary Church needs your money. In fact, I want to say to you all, your generosity and your investment in what God's doing by your giving to Calvary Church has been absolutely overwhelming to elders, to the pastoral staff. You all are amazing. In fact, in preparing this, I kept thinking, I need this a whole lot more than a lot of the people I'm talking to. They've already done that. Do you know there are dozens of people at Calvary Church that have pulled together what they would give for an entire year and given that already, thinking that we would have a cash flow crunch because of COVID and not gathering. And they've given their entire yearly offering, average for the past year, they've given all already. We are running right now like 92, 93% of revenue. That's unbelievable. Some of you have changed your giving patterns. You give online. You're giving, you know, through automatic um, deposit and stuff. Thank you for that. It's amazing. Some of you drop off checks. You mail them in. That's amazing. I'm not saying this because God needs your money, and I'm not saying it because we do. I'm saying it because giving, God says. Remember, let God start the conversation. Giving says God is a way for us to experience the gospel and extend the gospel. Now, here's the verse from Malachi, and I don't know any other verse in the Bible like this. Here's here's what God says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there will be food in my house. Now, here it is. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room to store it. I don't know anywhere else in the Bible where God says, you test me, okay? Bulls in your court. You do what I'm asking you to do, And let's see if I prove faithful or not. Now, he says, bring the tithe. Now, a tithe doesn't mean whatever you put in the offering bucket. That's not a tithe. The word tithe means tenth. So here's the challenge. Why don't you try it for 90 days, three months? Whatever God brings to you, whatever God allows you to receive these next three months, give God a tenth of that. Give it that. Test him, right? Don't test Charles. Test God. He said it. Test me in it. So whatever he brings, give a tenth to God. At the end of three months, if that's not sustainable, stop. 
if it is sustainable and God blesses you beyond your imagination, you just keep doing that as evidence that God is faithful. And when we give, we make an investment in his promise and his plan. And it requires faith, but God rewards all faith that is put in him. And I don't want to end without saying, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right at the end of those two chapters on giving, the most extensive passage in the whole Bible about giving, here's how he ends the section. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's the real engine and motivation of our giving? It's not somehow to check a box and now God owes us something. All we're doing is reflecting our giving God who gave the priceless gift of heaven, Jesus, the Messiah. So we can experience forgiveness. And that passage earlier says, Jesus came and experienced poverty so we can become rich. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. On behalf of the elders, senior leadership team at Calvary Church, I wanna thank many of you for your indescribable gifts over these past few months to Calvary Church. And I wanna challenge all of us. As we reflect on the indescribable gift of Jesus given for our salvation, let's realize our giving is an investment in what God promises and the plan of the gospel. It's going to require faith. You're not going to feel like it. Don't wait till you feel like it. Don't wait till you have excess. But as we do, God's going to do amazingly wonderful things in our community. And people will be blessed locally, regionally, and globally if we follow through with what God challenges us with. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love. We give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for all of the blessings that you've given, materially, spiritually, relationally. Lord, they're beyond our ability to even understand, let alone be able to say thanks for. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be grateful receivers and help us to show our faith by making investments in what you promise, not what we see. Help us not to wait till we're somehow feeling emotionally moved. Help us not to wait till we have excess. Help us to say, yeah, I'm going to uh, take some of what God's already given, and I'm going to invest in what God is doing and will do, and I'm going to do that by faith, not exactly by sight. I'll accept the challenge on the basis of the resurrection That's the economic philosophy that we follow. We pray in the name of Jesus, our indescribable gift. Amen.